Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWar and this is the Hellfire Club, debauchery in the Dublin mountains. I'm currently putting together an episode called Gunpowder, an Indian Meal, the Famine in Clahine, which is a return to the series on the Great Hunger. Now that episode is already well over an hour long and it looks like it might be as long as an hour and a half, but it will be on Patreon next week. I just want to take this opportunity to thank all the patrons of the show at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast for their patience and support with this episode. Getting an episode of this length out is only possible with their continued support. So thanks folks. Now in the meantime, I have this bonus episode which is about the story behind the Hellfire Club, one of Dublin's most famous landmarks. Situated a few miles outside the city, dominating Montpellier Hill in the Dublin mountains, it's surrounded by something of a mystery. The building is notorious and some regard it as one of Ireland's most haunted spots. Today it's a ruin, but the history and folklore are famous, or perhaps you might say infamous. The building is named after a pretty disreputable group known as the Hellfire Club and it has been associated with tall tales of devil worshipping and black masses. There are also numerous stories which associate the devil with the building. Now I don't believe in such tall tales but myths and legends like this usually emerge from some fascinating history based in real world events so I was really curious to find out more about the Hellfire Club. Now a few years ago the archaeologist Neil Jackman led an excavation at the Hellfire Club so I went and interviewed Neil to get the inside story on this famous building. Neil's excavation focused on a prehistoric mound at the back of the Hellfire Club where many of the myths and legends originate. According to folklore the supernatural stories that are associated with the Hellfire Club can be traced back to this ancient monument and the fact that it was supposedly destroyed to make way for the building that still stands on Montpellier Hill. I'm going to let Neil explain this fascinating story but I began by asking him to introduce himself and tell us a bit about his background. My name's Neil Jackman and I'm an archaeologist. 
I came to Ireland, I'm from Lancashire originally, I came to Ireland in 99 and I've been lucky to work in archaeology uh, in one form or another pretty much since. But one of the key things I've always had in mind is to try and tell the story and to, to make uh, archaeology accessible. And I have a company called Abata Heritage and we do a variety of archaeology and history related projects. Um, particularly what we typically aim to do is to get to the heart of the story behind these amazing places around Ireland. And, and that's what attracted us to the Hellfire Club in particular. Then we moved on to the Hellfire Club itself. And to give you a feel for the place, I asked Neil to describe the Hellfire Club, beginning with its location on Montpellier Hill. It's a hill, so it's about 380 metres high, but it's uh, you know, considered to be part of the Dublin mountains. And it's the Dublin mountain, I suppose, that's closest to the city. It's just outside of Tala. It's maybe about five or six kilometres outside of Tala and about seven kilometres outside of Rathfarnham. A lot of uh, older residents that we met up on site were telling us that they always saw this building on the skyline as kind of this brooding evil presence, if you like. Um, so they were always kind of threatened by the mothers and that, that if they misbehaved, they'd be sent up there. So it always kind of uh, had a big presence over the city. If you go there now, uh, what you'll find is this nice walks and so on. But you get to the top of the hill and you see one of the most strange buildings you'll ever see. Uh, it's got a real brooding presence to it. Um, it's two stories tall uh it's made of very rough stone and uh it's completely accessible you can go in and around it um very ominous feel to it and everything like that and i'm not one to believe in ghost tales and stuff like that but i can understand why people who do paranormal investigations and you know ghost tours and all of that this is a real um uh, place for them this is a real highlight for them so i can see why definitely there's a big atmosphere to it and just behind it, just behind the Hellfire Club, you can see this very low mound. And uh, that mound uh, is what w we were looking at, which was uh, supposed to be this passage to him. Because the stories all begin with the destruction of it um, by William Connolly in 1725. And uh, that's where the folklore really begins. That Apparently, the devil was so angry that this big ancient tomb was destroyed that he blew the roof off the building and cursed William Connolly and all of this kind of stuff. After this, I asked Neil to explain the history of the building. It was originally built uh, for William Connolly, and he was he was the son of an innkeeper um, from Ballyshannon in Donegal, but he rose to become the richest man in uh, Ireland or Britain in the, the 18th century. And he primarily did that through, he was a lawyer, so he did it through land transfers after the Williamite Wars um, and in subsequent years. He made an absolute fortune. He bought the estate from the Duke of Wharton in about, uh, I think it was 1723. He bought the estate for 62,000 pounds. He bought Rathfarnham Castle. And Montpellier Hill, in the Hel uh, where the Hellfire Club is now, was part of the estates of Rathfarnham Castle. So there was nothing really, um, it was kind of seen as unproductive land, if you like. It, it didn't really have a great practical use by the Duke of Wharton and, and you know, his forebears. Uh, but William Connolly saw it as the ideal place to build a deer park. Um, so he had um, about a thousand acres enclosed there. Um, and on the summit, that's where he had his hunting lodge built. It was supposed to be designed, it possibly, we haven't got a direct um, uh, bit of proof on this, 
But there's a suggestion it was actually designed by Edward Robert Pierce, who was one of the big Palladian architects of the time. He was working in around 1720s on Castletown House in just outside of Selbridge, which is William Connolly's big mansion. Uh, so there's a chance that he built the Hellfire Club, uh, you know, designed the Hellfire Club, because even though it looks like a very grim building today, it was actually plastered and whitewashed. It's kind of in a nice Palladian style. Um, not that you think it when you look at it now. But that's where the, this is where the folklore and um, the history kind of collide, because to build the actual structure, it's said that William Connolly ordered his workmen to demolish uh, a great kern, a great tomb, and to use all of the stone of the tomb as building materials. Uh, so that's where we really start to get legends and things like that apply. Those legends are helped out a little bit by history as well, um, with William Connolly died just four years after it was built. So, you know, some people probably exchanged a knowing look about that. Um, after William Connolly had died, it stayed essentially um, fairly uh, abandoned for a little while. It wasn't really used until, uh, and this is where, again, we, we're trying to find a clear historical bit of proof on this. There is some uh, debate about it, uh, that the Earl of Ross, who was the leader of a group of aristocrats that called themselves the Hellfire Club, was said to have leased the building uh, from Catherine Connolly, uh, Connolly Williams' uh, widow. Uh, and that's where we start to get some of the stories now at the Hellfire Club. And it's then that, that organization that lends its name to the site. Uh, and they themselves were, were real historical figures. Um, uh, they were basically the cream of aristocracy uh, in 18th century Ireland. Um, and yeah, they, they got up to, uh, according to historical accounts, they got up to all sorts. Um, uh, they, they didn't last too long as an organization. Um, you know, it ended with a couple of key members basically drank themselves to death. Uh, another key member was arrested for murder as well. And um, so the, the you know, the, the name of the Hellfire Club is, is pretty well earned by what these historical figures actually got up to. Uh, so, yeah. Now, while Neil is going to go on and explain more of the Hellfire Club's more notorious members, I want to take a short break here. Hi folks, thanks for taking time to download the show. I hope you're enjoying it. I frequently said that the internet is changing history, not only in the way we access books and articles and audiobooks, but the way history itself is actually researched. You can get so many original sources online now, but I've been lucky enough to get a sneak preview of what is undoubtedly going to be one of the biggest launches of the year on this front. A major new archive of material that covers Ireland's revolutionary and independence movement that will all be online, available at your fingertips from May 30th. So Irish Newspaper Archives, the long-time sponsors of the show, are about to add over 100 Irish radical and political newspapers, journals, pamphlets and bulletins to their archives. It contains everything from war news, the publication produced by the rebels in 1916, through to the numerous magazines and newspapers produced from within the Republican movement during the Irish War of Independence. I've had a chance to peruse them and I was really blown away. What I liked most was that you get the viewpoint from these people who shaped some of the most important and interesting events in Irish history, giving viewpoints no mainstream newspaper would dare publish at the time. The archive also contains less well-known sources as well. 
It includes publications from trade unions, socialist parties, right through to Irish fascists in the 1930s. These really help give you an understanding of what people of the time were going through and thought because, as I said, you see what leading figures in these various movements were thinking rather than just what newspapers thought of them. Now this archive will be online on May 30th, so mark that date for your diary. I'd really recommend checking this out. There's over 115 titles with over 11,000 actual individual publications. Whether you are researching this period or you're just a history fan, I can guarantee you won't want to miss this. So you can find out more at irishnewspaperarchives.com on May 30th. So that's irishnewspaperarchives.com on May 30th. Now, let's get back to the interview with Neil. Neil now returns to the story of the infamous members of the Hellfire Club. Just to give a little overview of the members of this group, um, they were the very top of society. So you could say the chief member was Richard Parsons, who was the first Earl of Ross. Um, now, he was uh, known, you see, it, it's in the context of the age of the Enlightenment as well. So for a lot of aristocrats then, this is a time, I suppose a little way paralleled by today, where people are moving away from organized religion. So the, you know, in favor of science and commerce and industry and all of that. But these fellas took it to the next level. And apparently they performed, you know, mockeries of the mass and all of this. Jonathan Swift, the author of Gulliver's Travels, was a contemporary of these. Uh, he was the vicar in Dublin at the time. And he described them as a brace of uh, monsters, Bacchian aliens and blasphemers. So um, the Earl of Ross, uh, he uh, he was supposed to be quite a nice guy, quite an engaging guy. But he was very um, dissolute, if you like. He was a big drinker. Uh, He loved to prank people all the time as well. So if a churchman came around to his estate, he would meet them in the nude. Um, perhaps the f- most famous story about the Earl of Ross is that uh, the final prank he played when he was dying, uh, his neighbour, uh, the Reverend Madden, who was the butt of many of the Earl of Ross's jokes, came around to um, basically sent him a letter, which was just entitled My Lord. And within it, there was this big, long diatribe about all the crimes that the Earl of Ross was said to have committed, uh, you know, blasphemy and whoring and all of this kind of stuff. Um and at the end, it was basically, now you're on your deathbed, you should repent or, you know, you should repent before you meet your maker. So the Earl of Ross uh, from his sickbed decided because it was only addressed to my Lord, he put it inside a new binder and had it delivered to the famously pious Earl of Kildare, who was really straight laced and puritanical. So the Earl of Kildare opens this letter and he's being accused of blasphemy and whoring and all of this kind of stuff. And he, he was in an outrage and he charged out to meet uh, this Reverend Madden. And it took him a while to work out what the, you know, who was at the center of all of this uh, joke. Uh, and by that time, the Earl of Ross himself had died. He seems like a very charismatic man, but uh, another key member of the group, um, Lord Santry, Henry Barry, was a little more dangerous. He was uh, known to be very fond of duels. He was said to have little notches on the, at the butt of his pistol uh, for people he'd downed in duels. But he, uh, he, He's, you know, associated principally with two murders. Uh, one were there was one of his chairmen who used to carry him around Dublin was sick in bed and Barry was drunk. He poured uh, whiskey over him and set him on fire because he was annoyed he couldn't have his lift. 
Uh, now, the other murder that is a matter of historical record because he went to trial for it was uh, he stabbed uh, a man called Lachlan Murphy. Uh, he ran him through with his sword and Murphy died some weeks later of the injury. Uh, and he was brought to trial for it and he was actually found guilty and he was sent- sentenced to be uh, hung by a silken rope. But uh, the, in a weird twist that you only really get in the 18th century, the, the judges then immediately petition the king uh, to show clemency to Henry Barry because it doesn't do well to have a member of the aristocracy hung uh, in front of the general populace. Um, the king granted the pardon. This was helped as well by Henry Barry's uncle who controlled the water supplies into Dublin and promised to make life difficult if he wasn't uh, pardoned. Uh, but Barry had to go into exile then. So the organization is full of characters like this. Uh, Simon Luttrell, uh, he would, there's a whole book written about him um, dedicated to the worst man in England, the diabolical, and uh, that's Simon Luttrell. You know, uh, so many of these fellas were absolute uh, headbangers, for want of a better word, Um, but very, very entertaining ones. Uh, Now, because they didn't, as an organization, have any big, I don't think, religious belief, but they did love to mock religion. So they used to do things like black masses and trying to conjure up the devil. But that was more, I think, not out of a strongly held fervent, you know, love for the devil. I think it was to shock polite society more than anything else. Um, So, but a lot of stories started to generate about these guys. So one of the key stories that keeps returning now and again, and when you're looking at the Hellfire Club, is this story of a black cat. So a black cat was supposed to sit at the head of the table at every meeting at the Hellfire Club, and that was supposed to be the devil uh, in a cat form. Uh, Now, there was one tale that all the locals tried to creep up to the Hellfire Club to see what they were actually getting up to. The guys inside saw them coming, and they drank something called scalfine, which was a mix of hot butter with whiskey, and they drank this by the pint. So it sounds pretty savage, but they poured this stuff over a cat, lit the cat on fire and sent her out the front door into the crowd of people who, of course, see this hellish apparition screaming and running at them and all scatter. So things like that kind of definitely help the uh, the stories along. There's a couple of other... T- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Tales as well about them um, sacrificing people. They They have in their own letters um, that they sacrificed virgins and that, but I think that's more, you know, I don't think they killed the virgin. I, I, I think, you know, sac- they deflowered the virgin for want of a, a better word. They, they were bad lads. And, um, when you have people of that rank of society behaving so outrageously, more and more stories start to build and to add to them as well. And every time people came up during the excavation, everyone had their own story about it. You know, if you run around the building, 13 times or 12 times you see the devil and you know everyone had a different number and things like that but everyone had their own story there's supposed to be um, uh, some uh, you know uh, people buried around it in weird ways and people murdered and all of this kind of stuff now you can't find a lot of historical evidence for some of these things but certainly that particular group of aristocrats i can understand why they generated so many tales after the history our discussion turned to that prehistoric mound at the rear of the building, where Neo focused his excavations. The destruction of this is heavily interlinked with modern stories and legends that surround the building. Integral to any archaeological excavation is the wider landscape, and Neil began talking about his excavations by placing Montpellier Hill and the Hellfire Club in the historic and prehistoric context of the Dublin Mountains. Neil also discusses the folklore of the area, so important to how the Hellfire Club is understood today. Yeah, sure. I mean, the the Dublin Mountains um, have always been a little bit sort of a wilderness in a sense. You know, they've always been looked at as um, a place of danger to some degree. And you'll actually see that in terms of the number of castles and tower houses and things like that, just in south, you know, the southern parts of uh, South County Dublin and uh, Dunleary Rats Down, that they were always worried that the Dublin Mountains are essentially an extension of the Wicklow Mountains. And that's where the warlike, you know, O'Burns and O'Toole's and all of that, that, that you know, um, could come down from. So they were always, they, it was always seen as this place of kind of danger. But it's one of the most, I think, one of the most important prehistoric landscapes in Ireland. It has uh, at least 11 passage tombs on top of the mountains. It has uh, a number of uh, other prehistoric monuments um, uh, all the way through there as well, from wedge tombs, portal tombs, uh, to um, 
barrows and things like that as well. So you can see that it's been a place of real importance for thousands and thousands of years. Now, the what was recorded on site there in Montpellier Hill was in the archaeological survey as being a possible passage tomb, and that related rather to its size and shape. It looks like a very low mound because it's been so damaged, but it's about 30 meters in diameter. It's quite sizable. And it fits the pattern of a lot of these other passage tombs that dot the top of the Dublin mountains. What's interesting about the Dublin mountains as well is similar to, in some degree, like the the Bruna Boyne and and Boyne Valley places like that, there's a lot of ancient folklore associated with the Dublin mountains, which gets a little overlooked. For example, the famous tale of Usheen returning from the uh, other world, where he's riding along on the horse. He sees these poor, pitiable models you know trying to move a big stone uh he feel he would been warned that if he touched the soil of ireland again he would turn into an old man but he uh he goes to bend down to lift up the stone touches the ground and he you know he, he turns into an ancient man and dies that was all said to have the actual location for that there's a good chance that was Tala hill which is the next mountain over to um, montpellier hill there's incredible folklore up there, and that's matched by the density of archaeology. But because it's in this um, little kind of hinterland on the edge of Dublin, it, it, it's sort of been a little bit overlooked, really. Um, but the, there's a, you know, we wanted to really get to the heart of how old these tombs were. Um, you know, what sort of, uh, how were they constructed? How did they compare to other megalithic tombs? Was it definitely a megalithic tomb to begin with was a, a big, big question. And if we could find anything that could radiocarbon data as well. These were some of the objectives that we had when we were beginning the actual uh, project, really. Um, just to see how much of this folklore about Connolly destroying an ancient kern we could actually prove. Uh, so that that kind of gave us the, the impetus to do that. That and the knowledge of this important prehistoric landscape that it's part of, the, you know, the broader context, I suppose. Before we continue, I just want to say Neil has launched his own podcast on Irish archaeology. It's called Amplify Archaeology. You should check that out. It's in iTunes, Spotify or wherever you're listening to this today. So that's Amplify Archaeology. It's well worth checking out. In our conversation on the Hellfire Club, Neil next delved into what he actually discovered at the Hellfire Club. Yeah, so we wanted to see did anything still remain intact, and if it did, what was it? Because it could it give us an uh, an insight into how it looked, and also if possible, how old was it? So what we found essentially was the very back part of a, a large passage tomb. Um, so it, it, people might be familiar with, say, um, Newgrange or uh, perhaps more uh, Newgrange being it's not of that size and shape. And, and it's a little different to that. It would be quite similar to Loch Crewe or to the tombs at Carrowkeel. So you've got a great big mound of stone about 30 meters in diameter. This is how it originally would have looked about a mound of stone, about 30 meters in diameter, standing about four or five meters high off the top of the hill and it would have had a stone line passageway leading to a burial chamber and inside the burial chamber there would be uh, the cremated remains of men women and children so that that's going off other excavations now so what we found was that most of it had indeed been fully quarried but we did find part of the kern that once covered it uh, still intact and we even found what looked to be revetments uh, basically 
cut sod soil at the very base of the cairn and the outside of it to stop the stones from slipping outwards. Within that, we found um, megalithic art. We found a large, uh, what seems to be a curbstone, bearing very faint megalithic art. Now, the reason it, it's so faint, and it was a little lucky to find it in a sense, was it was out of its original context. It once would have been a curbstone forming the perimeter of the tomb, but probably during the quarrying phase, it had been selected and then rejected by the builders, and it lay in the center of the hollow from where the quarried tomb was. And people had been using that very stone, which had 5,000-year-old art on it, uh, as a lining for a bonfire for generations. So it was in very bad condition when we found it. So we just happened, occasionally you come across great uh, serendipity, if you like, in archaeology every now and again. Now, we did our excavation in October, and just that low glancing sun just hit the stone, because we hadn't seen the art when we first moved the stone. It just hit the piece of the stone at the right angle, and all of a sudden, it, it, we could see it. It was there. So we had the discovery program uh, come up and do laser scanning, and Ken Williams, who's a great photographer, came up and did photogrammetry and confirmed all the art on it as well. So that was one of the most significant discoveries. We also found other things associated with passage tombs as well, a small mushroom-headed bone pin. Uh, we found um, stone tools, flint tools, um, and yeah, we found a beautiful polished stone axe head as well. And what was particularly interesting about that axe, it was made from um, porphyritic dolerite. But what was interesting about it is the edge never seemed to have been used. There was no whir on the edge to it at all. It was still sharp, but it had been broken cleanly in half, seemingly in antiquity. And this is quite like one in the Mound of the Hostages, which is the same sort of monument uh, on the Hill of Tara. Now, that makes you think that perhaps this axe was deliberately made to be deposited as a grave good in the tomb, maybe as an offering to the gods, maybe as an offering to an ancestor or a loved one, but it had been deliberately broken. And you see that that's theorized about some later periods of prehistory, that if you kill an object in this world, it's usable in the next world. And, you know, there's a couple of little things like that that give us insights, I suppose, into some of perhaps of the, the belief uh, of these people who, who lived, the, you know, five over 5,000 years ago. The radiocarbon dates, we only have three dates at the moment, and that's not enough to conclusively be certain of how old the monument is for sure. Um, but it seems to be uh, the middle of the fourth millennium, so about 3,600, 3,500 BC seems to be about right, which makes it uh, a few hundred years older than Newgrange. Um but that kind of fits its style a little bit as well. Robert Hensey, who's an archaeologist, he he kind of categorizes these passage tombs into three types. Type one being the earliest and most simple. And you'd see examples of that at Caramore in Sligo. And they're basically very small, rough boulders are uh, defining the perimeter and a small area to, you know, put cremated remains in. The type two tombs become a bit more elaborate. They've got passageways where people can come in and out of them. Um, they can have multiple burials in there. Uh, and the Hellfire Club would fit in with that. Other examples of places like Karakiel, for example. Or type three tombs then are the latest of them. They're the grandest. They're the likes of Newgrange, Kerntier, uh, Lockcrew, uh, Nowth. And they become more temple than tomb, if you like. They become more about 
living ritual rather than repositories of the dead. So this seems to be uh, the Hellfire Tomb, based on what we found, seems to fall into the second category there, um, which is really interesting. It's, uh, I think it, it's there's not many sites in the Dublin Mountains either that we can conclusively say have megalithic art and things like that as well. So it's certainly, um, for a site that's been so badly damaged, it's certainly beginning to ask some very interesting questions. And, and that's the thing with archaeology. You very rarely get straight answers to anything. It's always just better questions to ask. But when you're trying to describe um, a monument like this by just excavating two trenches, it's kind of like trying to describe a mansion by just looking through a keyhole, you know. But in this case, the mansion's been pretty much destroyed and quarried. Uh, so you, you're having to you know, um, do a little more leaping now and again to to see exactly how big and, and, and what it might have been like. A lot of it has been destroyed. But the, it does have potential uh, to find out more. Essentially, this is a passage tomb that is reconstructed into the form of an 18th century building inside it. So one of the things I hope to have done is to have the Hellfire Club itself completely laser scanned inside and out to see if we can see any more megalithic art, for example. Or if any, you know, if there's any more potential to do things like that. Towards the end of our conversation, I was curious about the relationship between the ruins of the Hellfire Club that can still be seen on Montpellier Hill today and Neil's excavations of the original prehistoric mound, the destruction of which started generations of folklore. So I asked Neil, could he tell us a bit about his conclusions from his dig? There was two possibilities with our excavation. We were going to find um, that either the construction of the Hellfire Club itself had completely destroyed anything earlier, and in which case we might find rubble or, you know, construction materials or things like that, um, or we could find intact archaeology. Now, we did find in the upper layers, as we started to remove some of the topsoil and some of these upper contexts, we did find, interestingly enough, things like 18th century brick and 18th century tile and glass, which are all contemporary to when the Hellfire Club would have first been constructed. And the reason for that is that the building itself was quarried. The building, the Hellfire Club building itself, it is quite a, a strange story when you think about it, that to build that, they destroyed a 5,000-year-old tomb but the building itself had become a ruin itself 55 years later. It had already been described as a complete ruin just within one generation. And it became quarried itself. People came up and took away all the fine granite steps, all the nice stonework, uh, and they took them away to build um, Montpellier Lodge lower down the hill and a couple of other landed estates around there as well quarried the Hellfire Club building. So we found some 18th century materials to do with that stage, if you like, to do with that demolition. Uh, phase of it. I worked in archaeology for years and one aspect of the industry that frustrated me is that reports of excavations are often inaccessible to the public. However, I was really impressed by what Neil has done with his findings. He has published it all for free online so you can now download the videos, the photos and the report itself at abartaheritage.ie. It's an incredible resource. Neil talked a little bit about this. I wanted to try to make that story as fully as accessible as possible. I mean, because it's, I think when people understand the story a little more, they cherish the place 
a little better in some cases, you know, and um, th that's a big part of what I hope to contribute in a very small way towards. Um, and to, it's, it's an experiment as well to, to publish online in this way. It, it's something a little different. And uh, I just wanted to see, you know, do people like that? Would they rather a traditional publication or, you know, and, and it all feeds into the not-for-profit aspect of the project as well, uh, which has been a core ethos of it that we, you know, this, um, one of the greatest things I, I think about Ireland as a country is that our past belongs to every citizen, you know, and uh, I think a part of that should be that the research, the information, the history, the archaeology should also belong to them as well. Um, so when we've done a project like this, which has involved um, local government funding from people like South Dublin County Council, then that's their taxes. That's, you know, um, so it matters a lot to me that they should be able to to have a repository where they can access it and understand it and uh, ask questions as well. We always welcome people getting in touch and asking us questions about the dig if there's anything they're not quite sure of or, or anything like that. Yeah. But I must say the the um, the interactive document was designed by Sarah Nyland. I think she's done a really nice job of it. And we wanted to put things like videos into it and all of that kind of thing as well. Just again, to see, does it work? Do, is, is it a process that people enjoy or is it a bit, um, you know, do they prefer a more traditional way of getting their information? Uh, so that's all on our website. It's all absolutely free uh, on abataheritage.ie. Um, so there's a, you'll see on our website, there's a subsection there for the Hellfire Club. And um, so we've broken up the report into different sections as well. So if you want to see galleries of images uh, of the dig in progress, if you want to see galleries of the artifacts, um, that's all on there as well, along with a load of videos and stuff like that too. But the full publication is on there and it's, uh, it's accessible from now, really. I want to thank Neil for taking the time to talk to me. And don't forget, he has his podcast out there now. It's about Irish archaeology. It's called Amplify Archaeology, and it's really worth checking out. You can find that in iTunes, Spotify, or on Neil's website, abartaheritage.ie. I'll be back next week with that episode, Gunpowder and Indian Meal, The Famine in Clahean. Until then, Sloan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 